Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Aparna Gopalan. Set in the eastern state of Odisha, in a district known as the Somalia of India, everyday state and politics in India, government in the backyard in Kalahandi, which is the book we're discussing today that came out with Rutledge in 2018, studies a development project in a region iconic for development failure. Drawing on rich fieldwork with a watershed development project in this district, anthropologist and researcher Selin Rotre moves beyond the question of success and failure to ask, how has the state it's itself transformed in the process of trying to develop Kalahandi? Here's my interview with the author. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Selin Rotre, to the program, and thank you for being with us. Thanks, Aparna, for um, giving this opportunity to me to talk about my work and the book. It's, it's a great uh, opportunity to talk to you here for the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm excited to get into your book. Uh, but before that, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to be interested in anthropology and in studying development in Kalahandi? Uh, so, I am at the moment based in this place called Bhuvneshwar, which is the capital of the East Indian state of Odisha. Um, and I'm from here. Um, and I primarily, I have grown up in Bhuvneshwar. Um, I became interested in issues related to development pretty late in my life, actually, at the age of 19. And... Um, the trigger was an essay by Arundhati Roy called The Greater Common Good, uh, which was, I read it in the Outlook magazine, but I think it was published globally as well at a couple of other places. I, mean, I don't remember the name of the other magazines, but I read it in the Outlook and uh, that particular uh, uh, um, cover story that she wrote, um, Greater Common Good, was about... Um, uh, the uh, social, ecological, and the political impact that a series of dams planned on the Narmada River in central India would have uh, over the next decades, and how a struggle, local struggle called the Narmada Bacha Andalan, was trying to both fight, um, uh, was actually fighting on the ground to prevent the project from taking off, but also simultaneously uh, working towards protecting the rights, um, the environmental rights and the social rights and the political rights of the people who would be affected. And it was not written in your classic um, reportage fashion in which there is a distance between uh, the one uh, who is reporting. She reported from the front lines, but she was very clearly her concern for the people shown through 
and uh, that was the uh, and i read it at the time uh, when i had just finished my junior college um and i was about to enter into my um uh, undergrad education my undergrad college so it was that vacation and that um uh, so i ended up doing my undergrad in uh, english literature and sociology uh, so that essay was like the trigger that made me enter into uh, uh, this broader set of debates about development about uh, what it means to g- get into and describe other people's lives and um, what is the relationship between our work and um, the work that we do um, and, 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 and 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 a sense of um, the good life right what is the good life yeah so so that is how i got into then got into an undergrad program in um bjb college which is a local college here in utkal university in bhubaneswar then after that i did a masters in social work with specialization in community development uh, in tiss that's the tata institute of social sciences uh, uh, an applied social sciences uh, a teaching and research institution um, a university actually in um, in bombay um so the field work there also as student social workers we have to work in one organization for a year uh, so i ended up working for two organizations in in um, uh, in bombay one of them was a child rights organization the other one um, worked with uh, people who dispose urban uh, waste solid um, solid waste um primarily dalits um, from maharashtra from marathi i am marathi speaking and tamil speaking uh and then i uh, during that period of time i also ended up doing a, um, a masters thesis that looked at um, so because of my field work with second year field work and also first year field work i increasingly became interested in questions about uh inequality and and how is it that different people depending upon their social location have very differential access to social resources and how it affects their sense of what is the good life and what to aspire for uh so and 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 I started realizing how central caste uh, is to how indian society functions so and i was also increasingly interested in environmental issues um, at that point of time so what i did for my masters thesis for two months um, in between my first year and second year in the summer of 2003 i did field work uh, in a district called dhenkanal in um, central odisha where i looked at uh, how traditional water management systems based on tanks um, and lakes um, and its imbrications with uh, rice growing um uh, has shaped caste relations and how caste relations have, have shaped access to common resources like water and and and, and forests and common lands uh so it was like one step at a time that i took from uh, from being generally interested uh, in developmental issues then trying to explore that interest by doing an applied social science course um, like a professional course in social work um worked as a student social worker for some time became interested in issues surrounding equity environment resources access and uh, and the good life right and then um 
over a period of time water became central to um, um, what I was interested in and um, because I also love water bodies right <laughs> like I, I can sit besides a water body even if it is like a biggish well for four hours altogether so it also gave me an opportunity to just to spend time with uh, my master's thesis and it gave me an opportunity to just sit around water bodies and talk to people uh, so and then for my um, PhD work that I did um, a couple of years later I wanted to take these concerns forward but uh, also see that not only at the level of the village society, but uh, issues surrounding water, access to water, how castes plays a factor, all of that. But um, to see that in the broader context of how, uh, because I was also increasingly aware of the larger um, political structures, uh, governmental apparatus, how that shapes uh, a large number of things around us. And in turn, that when that is shaped by how a large number of social actors act on the ground. Uh, so then I was led uh, to figure out a site where um, these issues uh, kind of stand out in sharp relief. So Kolahandi is this um, district in southwest Odisha, almost in central India. Uh, that is uh, that is an iconic district in the developmental history of India because many people call it the Somalia of India uh, because of the acute levels of deprivation um, that is uh, seen and experienced by the people there. Uh, Family-like situations have prevailed on many occasions over the last uh, six, seven decades. Uh, this, um, issues surrounding famine access to food have generally been framed around questions of um, uh, drought and, and lack of water when that is not the case. So I thought if I have to look at questions of water, how does state mechanisms work with respect to water provisioning um, and uh, a similar set of issues, I thought Kalahandi will be a great site to uh, begin and, 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 and park my questions. But then, of course, the like all ethnographic projects, it had, it had its own life. And, and then I ended up uh, unpacking a large number of uh, parallel set of questions. Sorry, I have taken a lot of time. <laughs> no, that's great. I think you, you actually um, anticipated, I guess, my, my next question, which was going to be about the specific site um, and about this kind of uh, the, the framing of Kalahandi as the Somalia of India. Um, because in your first chapter, you discuss how this narrative actually gets constructed over over the years. Um, and you also discuss some alternative framings um, of the region, which are left out of the uh, narrative of, you know, Kalahandi as a metaphor for drought and hunger. So can you talk a little bit about how the narrative gets constructed, the dominant narrative, and uh, what are some other narratives that are out there? So, uh, in the mid um, 1960s, uh, so around the time, uh, I think that's a global Indian story as well, when uh, India had to import a lot of uh, food grains in the middle of the uh, 1960s to, um, 
to 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 support a, a failing agricultural system and that is when um, the green revolution takes off as an apparent response to that um, perceived crisis so that was also the time when um, so the crisis that india indian agriculture was going through at that point of time was made acutely manifest in 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 kolahandi so that was uh, the uh, time of almost famine like situation in kolahandi so that was the first time the mid 1960s when kolahandi comes into uh, the um, public eye so to speak but because it was also a larger national um, issue so so it didn't stand out that much but uh, the region again came back to the uh, national imagination in the mid 1980s when um, um a girl her name was panas um, punji who was apparently sold by her sister in law for 40 rupees because of acute uh, distress so when the news uh, broke in national media so rajiv gandhi who was then prime minister he actually visited the district to take stock of the situation and uh, around that time a flood of reports started uh, coming out in a large number of local regional and national publications so um, and they created stock key tropes around which um, the issues concerns themes surrounding kolahandi started getting built but the argument will be that it is not only about kolahandi but then those talk images those talk ways of talking about um, poverty deprivation then start informing the larger national um, uh, narrative so they so be essentially then um, the uh, acute poverty and deprivation of kolahandi was uh, seen as a result of um, uh, of drought because uh, of the land being as drought prone and uh, uh, and because of under development and so the um, solution then that was proposed was to extend irrigation um, have industries have uh, targeting uh, targeted special programs for specific population groups so uh, those are the stories uh, those are the solution those are the um, stock uh, fixes that were proposed so specific uh, governmental projects have taken place for the last three and a half decades now uh, in 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 kolahandi and not only in kolahandi there is a belt in um, um, southwest ulsa called kbk uh, named after three districts which were later subdivided into a large number of districts but um, at that point of time there were three called Kolahandi, Bolangir, Koraput, which are essentially tribal-dominated uh, um, demographically, um, with large amount of forested tracts. At the same time, were seen to be plagued by drought and deprivation and underdevelopment. So, special uh, KBK um, programs and then plans started being formulated at the regional level with support of the central government, and. Uh, many commentators argue that the situation even now is not radically that different as it was in, in the mid uh, 1980s so then the question remains that then what is the effect of these large number of um, um, government programs right uh, if like following 
from the kind of agreement James Ferguson makes. So the, the these governmental programs have not perhaps um, produced a very large difference with respect to the quality of life and the well-being of, of the local people. But then they must have had some effects. So what are those effects? So then in that sense, that's one of the questions one start, started to think about when I started doing field work. That's great. Um, very uh, helpful in contextualizing where the work is taking place. And just following on your uh, the, the last thing you said, which is what is the effect that these programs have had if we don't measure it in a you know, in the program's own terms, or if we agree that the program has failed on its own terms, but but then has succeeded in doing something else, and what is that something else? So um, before we talk about the specific changes in, um, you know, what is achieved by these kinds of programs since the 1980s, um, it might be useful for listeners for you to um, define this term state fabrication, Um how is it different from state formation? Uh, and then, you know, how did it come to become one of the things that became the key, uh, one of the key processes that you studied in your ethnography? Uh, for this, I have to actually um, maybe discuss um, my experience of the fieldwork. I mean, otherwise, mm-hmm. it will be... Um, uh, but otherwise, it will not make sense if I start with the quote-unquote theory or, or the concept. Hmm. So basically, so what I ended up doing is ultimately look at this uh, uh, project called Western Odisha Rural Livelihood Project. That was a 10-year project um, across Central Odisha. But for each district, the project cycle was five years. So when I started doing field work, uh, I chose blocks and villages. Blocks are developmental units, units of developmental administration in India. So I chose villages and blocks where the project had already uh, been implemented for five years, uh, sorry, four years, and it was it, towards the end of the fourth year and beginning of the fifth year, so, I, I, so that I could al- already see some amount of effect of that project, but it, it is not over, so I can also see it in action. So, Western Odisha livelihood, uh, Rural Livelihoods Project Warlap was a, uh, what is in developmental uh, parlance known as a um, watershed plus project. So, it was not only about watershed conservation, but try uh, it also tried to uh, deal with uh, the social aspects that sometimes watershed projects neglect. So, that it tried to reach out not only to landholders, but to the landless. So, that so it was a well thought out project that tried to include everyone. So uh, when I started doing field work in, in, so I ended up doing field work in two blocks and two villages, uh, and one uh, and the district headquarter. Uh, so across a period of uh, fifteen months. Um, but the actual field work actually took place over a long, um, longer period of time because I ended up doing a lot of historical archival uh, research, which ultimately did not feed into my thesis. So the ethnographic work happened across kind of 19, 20 months, but the concentrated field work happened only for 14, 15 months. So in in after I spent a few months in these villages, because I was staying in both these villages. Um, so the 
language of the people who are the purported uh, beneficiaries of the project and the local functionaries of the government that um, um, that that are delivering the project that are working on the project uh, had a tactility to it there is no other way to put it so they would always use sensory metaphors to talk about how they are working let me explain so for example if there is a meeting happening at the district level about pias uh, a pia is a project implementing agency at the block level um, block is the unit of developmental administration in india uh, so the question that uh, the uh, district level officials will ask is uh, is how many pias have touched how many villages so 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 let's focus on the word touch right so similarly um, a large number of the times the, these tactile metaphors will be used and the large number of times uh, uh, visual metaphors will be used and not only for villages but for uh, self help groups for uh, working groups for um, individuals for um, households so then i realized that the and when i realized ki what are the ways in which um, people are ex- kind of if not experiencing perceiving uh, talking about the state making sense of the state and and its apparatus um, people who are even apparently inside the state system are just low level functionaries uh, is through this set of um, Uh, kind of sensory metaphors not through their social position right they're not saying that i'm this government servant and therefore i need to operate in this way or i'm this um, i belong to this caste as a project beneficiary and and, and therefore my experience is different but uh, through a specific sensory metaphor that is one man i can elaborate but i don't want to get into too many details so um, the second part is also what was my um orientation and and and, and my um, point of departure of doing this work and and what was my motivation uh, like theoretical motivation for for framing the work this way so that was to do the fact that i personally have this understanding and that might be wrong that Uh, the way we think and do social sciences especially in india uh, we tend to think that our problems are of theory but um, but to my mind the problems are not theoretical in nature they are essentially linguistic in nature which basically means that we think because we are discussing about a particular social form or a social domain we have uh, naturalized the language to explain it so for example if we are talking about let's say um, bodily practice then the default domain that we think it inhabits is sexuality uh, if it is let's say uh, things to do with access to resources or uh, uh, working with the governmental system then we think the default uh, domain to think and and and, and talk about the broad kind of concept that holds it all together is power right so then i started to think whether i can make sense of what i am seeing in the field 
what I am experiencing in the field about how these diverse set of social actors are interacting with the governmental system. Uh, can I make sense of it without taking recourse to a language of power? So, so I started thinking about it when I was doing field work. But when I started writing, so what I did, I will deliberately not use power and um, the the concept of power and everything that is attendant with it. And what uh, I'll also go to the extent that um, I will um, do a word search and. And, and, and just delete, if I mention the word power anywhere, just delete it and see how else can I make sense of what I have seen, what I have experienced, what I have heard, what people have told me uh, without taking recourse to the language of power. So that was my route towards coming and arriving, come traveling and arriving at this con constitutive state fabrication. So fabrication um, um, is, um, is a word, I mean, is a concept that uh, Judith Butler uses um, to understand um, um, uh, her uh, um, uh, kind of conceptualization of gender. So for her, it's not that one is a specific, uh, one belongs to a specific gender and, and, and acts uh, the, uh, as a result, but, uh, but she sees... Um, and, and it's also not that a certain set of actions accrete, they, they kind of coalesce together to produce a gender identity. But she sees, to my mind, I might be wrong here in this understanding, that um, for her there is no uh, gender identity outside of those actions. So the, uh, the understanding of gender as fabrication hints at a certain contingency, at a, at a certain non-identity based Mm, understanding of inhabiting a body, doing certain, undertaking certain practices with it, uh, to be available to the world in a particular way, right? So, uh, so then for me, um, like the conceptualization surrounding state formation, etc., come with a large uh, conceptual baggage of um, uh, social transformation that is. Uh, overtly Marxist in nature. You might have some liberal versions of the same argument. That does not by itself make it something that I cannot use, of course. But but to my mind, if I were to use that frame, the frame of state formation and how do specific social classes contest uh, historically, to, to produce um, uh, historical outcomes, right? Uh, that, and if I, I tried applying that, that frame to what I was seeing on the ground and, and also look at historical material available for me over the last 40, 50, 50 years, uh, and, and it was not very helpful to me to, to understand what was happening um, around me. So then I thought, can one extend this idea of fabrication to the domain of governmental work and, 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 and see whether it, it, it aids to our understanding? Yeah, that's it. That's okay. Yeah, that's uh, very helpful. Thank you for the context about the fieldwork, which uh, definitely is going to help listeners understand how you arrived at state fabrication. Um, and then I guess getting into the details of what you found, um, you uh, tell us that since the 1980s, uh, there has been 
a new mode of state fabrication that has come up and become um, prominent in development uh, circles in India, um, which you call the mission mode. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how you observed mis- the mission mode of state fabrication and your field work? What exactly is, is it and how is it different from uh, what came before it? Uh, so one thing to keep in mind when one um, is kind of using the frame of state formation to, to, to look at uh, how the functioning of the governmental work has changed as opposed to state fabrication, I think one difference needs to be kept in mind, which is um, which is uh, like why I think also another imperative of why I wanted to do this work, right? So when we discuss about um, so it, uh, about, about the state in India or for that matter elsewhere in the world, especially in the global south, uh, so there is this clear distinction we have in mind, which is around form and content, right? So form is the broad uh, governmental architecture. Right of, of, of the way the institutions function and the uh, ideological apparatus that governs them, whereas the content is essentially um, is, is this politics, which is uh, about making claims upon resources, which is uh, about fashioning uh, a, lang- a language so that you can make claims, all of that. So, uh, but so when we think about the state. Uh, I think more often than not, we are talking about politics. Like we are only discussing its quote-unquote content. Uh, when more when generally we tend to escape uh, talking about the formal architecture of the state and how had that shifted, because um, uh, because a large part of this architecture has become so naturalized in our mind, we somehow take them as uh, almost uh, natural objects. It's only only when they change uh, and shift in front of our eyes, then we realize, no, no, I mean, they have not always been this way and they need not be this way. Uh, like a very good example of this is, um, is, is that of electricity boards, right? So the electricity sector was, uh, was completely in the hands of the government till very recently in India. And it was primarily governed by this this specific kind of governmental entity called a board um, over the last 30 years 20 30 years in many states in india the boards were first made into a corporation and then the corporation more often than not to be divided depending upon their functional uh, uh, units and then they were slowly privatized so right now a large number of these boards have become companies okay so uh, so boards were one part in which the colonial state and and this is um, uh, true i'm giving a description of post independence india but this is a colonial inheritance so large amount of the architecture of the state that we inhabit in india is actually a colonial legacy which was not at all changed um during uh, the period of decolonization that is between let's say 45 46 to uh, 51, 52, uh, that seven, six, seven year period. Uh, so what was the, what were the units of this architecture? So there were boards, for example, the electricity boards, but there were also departments like the department of revenue, department of, uh, forest, uh, department of, um, the PWD department, public works department, etc. 
so so these departments were structured in a specific way they had a particular hierarchy they, they had they were related to government financing in a particular way and they also recruited for life for life money they will have retirement age and then you draw a pension so they established a specific kind of relationship with their employees so to become a government servant they have meant an association with the state for for for, for life for you work for 55 58 or 60 years and then you draw a pension and when uh, the government employees kind of dies then even the uh, wife or the husband continues to draw a pension till the time uh, she is alive or he is alive and that continues even uh, now but that that has changed radically over the last 30 years so uh, but Uh, so what for so what is the change so a large amount of the work that was happening within government boards government departments and other such units and established a specific kind of relationship with um, with, with with both the objects of government election as well as people who are implementing it uh, has been transformed so in the mid 1980s what happened a new kind of entity um started um, coming into being that was during um, the regime of uh, rajiv gandhi who came to power in 1984 and in 1985 a certain technological driven uh, way of uh, acting upon uh, in the indian social started taking um, control of the indian uh, administrative imagination so i think four or five it is a kind of it escapes me now technology missions in different um, aspects of uh, work governmental work were started one of them was the literacy literacy mission i think to achieve uh, adult literacy across the country so things that were a routine matter to departments now started uh, becoming a mat- matter of doing things in the mission mode so what does the mission mode mean it means you set up a mission that continues for as long as it can but the kind of relationships it engenders are very different so the work happens in the project mode uh, with fixed timelines you recruit the missions recruit people uh, on a contractual basis um the uh, so of course then that means there is no pension there is no guarantee that the employee continues to be associated after the duration of the project it often means that earlier the departments will have fixed um and 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 and, um, and big offices that become landmarks especially in small towns and cities so you kind of get directions with uh, respect to a specific government department's office in a, in a district headquarter or in a block headquarter but uh, these new missions uh, more often than not they will have projects that that administer crores of rupees but they will not have um, permanent offices more often than not people don't even know where these offices are uh, but which of course meant that slowly people started responding to these new kinds of governmental entities in a different way so earlier uh, 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 a citizen uh, a villager might uh, abuse let's say if he or she is dissatisfied with something uh, 
uh, a local politician but they will very rarely pick up the courage and um, to um, target or, or use foul language with a government servant also because it was um, it, it is a punishable offense you you cannot in any which way uh, target a government servant well in the functioning while they are transacting uh, uh, governmental work if even if you are hugely dissatisfied even if they are doing uh, things completely in contravention of the law but within people working in these missions are no longer seen as government servants they're seen as employees of the project right by by a large number of villages therefore they do, and do not um, um, kind of um, uh, command the same level of respect from villagers uh, it has also become the case because of a certain amount of familiarity whereas you don't expect and like nobody will expect a government servant like a senior or even a mid-level officer or even a junior officer to, to go to villages uh, frequently but whereas in a large number of these uh, projects that are run by the various missions um, these are data-driven exercises where there is a need for um, creation, collation, and reportization of, of data all the time, which means for for both this and for other work, for conducting group meetings, for, con, for dispersal of benefits, um, the government servants who are working in project mode in, in, in these various projects and the missions have to travel continuously to the villages. Then they're made available uh, with the villages all the time. And to conduct all these activities, they also need a large amount of local support. Uh, constant feedback so then the relationship between the state uh, the governmental apparatus and people seems to also change with uh, these um, missions in place uh, with respect to this particular project western Odisha rural livelihood project um, which is um, housed in the odisha watershed development mission and the district level uh, implementing agency is kolahandi watershed development mission and then there is a block level entity also, which are the PIAs, project implementing agencies. So uh, all of these, right, all of these entities have not supplanted the work of the um, uh, watershed that used to, watershed development that was used to happen uh, in the um, original uh, department government department which is soil conservation department it's not that the soil conservation department has completely um, disappeared it continues to exist so um, the thing to keep in mind when, when one is thought of thinking about this mission mode of state fabrication is not that it has uh, supplanted the earlier mode of state fabrication which was a departmental one but that it's a layering it's, it's a layering that that is thick on uncertain terrains, thin in other terrains. So, thinking about the relationship between these two different modes, maybe a geological metaphor might be better to make sense of what is happening on the ground. And sometimes in certain sectors, in certain geographies, therefore you will not find this layer. It, it is the departments that continue to function in full vigor. Right? And therefore, to my mind, this notion of fabrication, state fabrication, is uh, is a better way of understanding how the functioning of the government has happened because it is not that 
the transformation is the supplantation of one mode of other by, by the other it's not that this is the kind of argument that um, the uh, language of state formation wants you to buy into right which is that there was a particular relationship between social classes that has been um, uh, uh, kind of uh, removed and, and replaced by a certain other kind of relationship between social classes. I hope I'm making some sense. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it reminds me of uh, in the book somewhere you say that uh, it is where the state used to be only seen before the 80s. Under this new mode of state fabrication, it is both seen and felt. I think that's uh, that kind of ties together what you were saying earlier about the sensory metaphors uh, and what you were just saying about uh, you know layering and the way in which um, the, it's not that the state is no longer present at a distance, but uh, rather that in, in some cases it is also present close up and something that you can, you know, uh, feel and touch every day of your life uh, through one mission or project or the other. Um, so that, that does make a great deal of sense and, you know, aligns with a lot of uh, my own observations in, in fieldwork, um, uh, you know, looking at government programs and projects and missions uh, that is certainly uh, that's certainly an effect that uh, these missions have is that they bring the state close up into your really into your front courtyard if that's where you're sitting in your self-help group meeting um, but um, yeah so that's that makes a that makes a lot of sense um, another point that you uh, make in kind of from from your field work another kind of observation that's a um, yeah, that's like an insightful, a new observation about how development is functioning is um, basically there's a large literature we already know of, uh, in, which is talking about the NGOization of development and how NGOs have taken over the business of development and pushed the state out and things like that. And you provide some insights which uh, challenge this uh, traditional narrative and add to it um, and talk about how the state, it's not necessarily state versus NGO. There's something else uh, going on. So can you talk a little bit about uh, that? Uh, so actually, so, so when I started uh, looking at this project, Western Dorset Rural Library Project in Kolahandi, so it was being, it was at that point of time uh, being implemented in six blocks, six developmental blocks. Three of those blocks, I think, um, the implementing agencies were governmental bodies, and the other three were uh, non NGOs. Uh, so, so instead of uh, uh, so, what was very noticeable is that uh, uh, that the NGOs were also slowly um, using. Um, statist logics and, and, and metaphors and ways of operating uh, in their daily functioning because very clearly this is a government project. It has, although at the highest levels, it has also been formulated with a lot of civil society participation in terms of the project's design at the highest levels. Uh, and then it uh, at the local level, it is being implemented with uh, some non-profit participation. Although I must kind of, kind of uh, clarify that 
that need not be the case always it is not that ngos are pulled into you know implementing these mission mode projects all the time but 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 large number of the times that is the case so uh let's say the way the data is uh uh kind of generated the way the minutes are taken the way in meetings the way meetings are conducted the way uh let's say the same organization is relationship with villagers uh and uh, when they are implementing a governmental projects as opposed to uh, when they are doing um uh, uh, a project that is supported by uh, another non profit a funding agency uh, so so there is a difference so and at the same time there is a difference in the sense that there is a certain governmentalization of the ngos work that is very clearly evident because of its participation in this larger government apparatus but at the same time when you go to uh, let, let let's say at the district level and when all these governmental pias and non governmental pias all the six of them with their teams are sitting together to to transact uh, work uh, then the uh, culture of that meeting is not what you would expect the culture of a governmental meeting there is far less hierarchy um of course there is hierarchy but this far less hierarchy let's say who many people are eating together on with the disposable plates um so the in terms of uh, asking asking questions seeking clarification there is no strict order of precedence which is generally the case in government meetings uh so then you realize that even governmental organizations have started functioning a bit like ngos right so it is not that um uh you know, um it, it, there is a enjoyization of the uh, governmental work it's just that the government in fact this is what um, many people on the field would reflect all the time which is the government has become an ngo right whereas at the same time and which is different from the enjoyization of government's work right which mm-hmm. is to say that the government has become an ngo in the sense it has become its work has become contingent it has become a little open if so to speak uh, towards a lot very different kinds of manipulations uh, but at the same time even the ngos have state started becoming like government with respect to how they see their work how they plan for future interventions how they deal with quote unquote beneficiaries all of that one way in which this was uh, clear to me is this um, um development of this a terrain of the social that is increasingly important so many senior government servants will continuously say we have to operate in this way because the social quote unquote the social has become so important so because they if let's say the uh, soil conservation department when they because many of these government agencies that were implementing these projects government pis project implementing agencies they were from the soil conservation department they will say earlier when they were implementing projects in within the department uh they would not need to deal with people so much so they will be allotted a piece of land on which they will need to undertake certain treatment activities based on the guidelines of the department and the only relationship with the local people will be as employ employers right they will just employ some local people to get the work done whereas right now uh, the um, uh, people are involved in whichever notional way even if it is just notional from the very beginning right like because the village level committees watershed committees now have to 
at least approve of all the all the various activities that need to take place uh, like which where a tank has to be constructed where the trees have to be planted where uh, do you um, have um, let's say recharge wells all those or where do you have uh, a small check dam so all those questions need to be at least on pen, pen and paper they need to be taken in consultation uh, with uh, the local people that means you have to reach out to local people you have to sit in their meetings uh, so then they were seeing the perceiving importance of the social as mandated by these new kinds of projects as being central to the way um, their own functioning has been transformed and which was the case with um, with the way uh, even NGO people will talk about this as well. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that's very, yeah, that's very illuminating. I think that's one of your, uh, you know, most eye-opening arguments uh, because, yeah, with, I mean, NGOs in development have been discussed for a really long time, for decades, and uh, there seems to have been a kind of consensus about it, which remains at the level of theory um, without bringing the ethnographic observation to it that you do. Um, and I guess on that note also, uh, your book in some ways is a call to um, shift methodologies. Um, you, at one point you called your book an extended counter case to the passive revolution thesis, um, part of which is the methodological uh, shift that you are advocating for. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, what is the passive evolution thesis briefly and then uh, in what way are you offering a counter case to it? Uh, so passive revolution is a classic Gramscian idea, right? Uh, so in its simplest form, it, it just means that I, I, it, it just refers to the idea of uh, an incomplete transformation in social relations so that um, um, so the so that the transition from a, in the case of Italy to to a capitalist uh, society is never complete so Gramsci was reflecting upon very clearly as a practicing politician of of, 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 of figuring out possibilities of action so that a revolution takes place in Italy right um, and then, within the Marxist framework he was working, for him, uh, the relationship of between the classes uh, uh, could not be transformed across the 19th century for very specific contingent um, historical regions. Um, so, uh, so man, man, we can dis discuss what passive revolution means um, till the end of history but um, but but effectively for the purpose of this book that we are discussing and and, and what uh, practically it meant it has meant to a large number of social, social thinkers around the world so it has become a, 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 a template through which they are, we we understand uh, this idea of incomplete transition right uh, so, so in the sense that India is, of course, there is some agreement that it has not completely transitioned to capitalist modernity, right? Mm. Uh, and 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 um, and that is true of a large number of societies in the global south. 
so the passive revolution thesis provides a handle of discussing what happened in, in a particularly um, in a particular contingent uh, geographical and historical space in the specific society with respect to the relationship between the classes uh, that kind of has so it is not that the old feudal relations of colonial uh, semi colonial semi feudal relations have continued in their um, uh, original form so it is not that nothing has been transformed but the transformation is incomplete so it is an it is it, therefore it, 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 it in some sense of it it is also intervening this kind of a debate in the uh, uh, larger modernization uh, debates that 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 started in the 40s 50s and in some form or the other we are still grappling with the ghosts of of the of, of that kind of uh, like theoretical framework uh this theories of transition of, of of our societies in the global south uh so in the indian context okay so there are scholars like um i'm deliberately not getting into the theory because mane hmm. with that's a separate conversation mane what is passive revolution mane so that conversation maybe i'm not getting into that uh, hmm. so uh in the indian context scholars like sudhir kobiraj patil ji patil ji aditya nigam niveda menon so uh, a, a group of scholars i mean they they don't self consciously form a group but uh, but let's say there are a group of scholars uh, who, whose work uh, it, it can be described as heterodox marxist right so they they do not they, they practice some form of marxism in their academic work but uh, it is not um, it cannot be collapsed into any specific party line and there uh, at the same time they clearly clearly uh, stay clear of uh, all versions of um, left wing extremism hmm. so the to my mind the goals of these scholars has been to therefore provide a certain kind of um, Uh, framework within which the idea of this incomplete transition in india is explained and at the same time uh, certain spaces for practice are opened up so that uh, progressive politics can play, take place hmm. so there are certain key elements of these position to my mind hmm. uh, so one is uh, that historically where do you see that there for the most amount of transition that has happened right when was it that the pace of social change kind of um uh, fastened up uh so so many of these people most of these people are all of them argue that it is between let's say around the time of decolonization that uh, uh this transition the took place that could not be completed uh so that is the time in which india becomes independent just some couple of years before that and maybe till the time the constitutional state came into being a second aspect of the passive revolution thesis um is is this idea about um how they see uh, uh like the um, engine of 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 social change right uh for them very clearly they see the uh, actual act of decolonization the 
change of guard, so to speak. And therefore, the domain of politics as the central way in which um, such a transformation has happened. Let me explain what do I mean. So, uh, so they uh, very clearly set up a distinction between the domains of elites and the domains of the subalterns because some of uh, the members, some of the, um, like Pathachitiji has been a key member of the subaltern studies collective. Hmm. So they set up this distinction between these subalterns and, and, and the elites and uh, uh, the uh, practice of politics mm-hmm. for the subaltern then becomes a practice of claim making upon the state. And therefore, uh, for the, um, uh, the reason why total transformation of social relations in India hasn't happened therefore in this within this framework is because of a certain elite domination of uh, of our structures of the state structures in other aspects of social life um, and 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 therefore um, this uh, this idea that uh, let's say the what we conventionally understand as development now therefore um, is set up as this expert driven exercise as was exemplified by the constitution, um, by the making of the planning commission as a body that would advise uh, the government on developmental uh, activities, but that was not in any which way uh, democratically accountable. Like it was set up, planning commission was set up in the 50s under Nehru to to advise the government on developmental issues, but it was not accountable to the to to, to the to the Sabha, to the to, to the parliament in any which way, right? Not in, not directly. So, in therefore, so, so therefore, the um, idea that therefore the development the domains of development and the domain of politics are, are kind of separated out and, and, and under this model. Uh, it's also um, the idea of uh, um, the distinction between the political society and the civil society. So, this model, the past revolution thesis, also clearly distinguishes between these two. Uh, so the political society is the domain within which uh, uh, the, the the majority of Indians who, who do not have access to civil society make claims upon the state uh, and, and is actually popular politics, whereas the domain of civil society um, is the domain of the elite, right? Uh, so, uh, so then the question to ask from my field work, it was clear, ki when somebody is interacting with the governmental system uh, is it do they always act from their self-perceived uh, location as inhabiting a subaltern position or is there something else with which they're making sense and acting upon the state uh, so uh, and if I started my kind of journey about of thinking from from that point and then one arrived at at, at, at a certain state of um, uh, certain set of um, kind of differences with this broad framework because and, and initially I, uh, I, I I was trying to work with strategy actually like pathogenesis work and slowly I realized the field was speaking a very different language. So I didn't set out to um, 
in fact the idea of the passive revolution thesis was not clear my clear in my mind when i was uh, doing field work it is only when i was writing the thesis that and trying to make sense of what was happening in the field that these ideas came together so for example when i realized you know on the ground the work is no longer happening in this organization department it is happening in the mission mode then i started looking into the history of these issues then i realized it's only in the long 80s what i call the long 80s between 77 and 91 92 that the apparatus of the state that we inhabit right now um, uh, was getting built and transformed so there is a large amount of continuity across the colonial divide so in let's say in 1941 a large amount of the government's work was happening through government departments in 1976 a large number of Uh, the government's work was happening through government departments right so it is not that nothing changed between um, let's say 46 45 46 to 52 what happened like the colonial state apart from its coercive apparatus was that it distilled so um, and there, there are large number of a uh, huge majority of indian people who never even saw a white person uh the, the people who were apparently ruling over us they never saw uh, a direct artifact of the colonial state like they didn't see an office one would presume whereas uh now with the uh, governmental um, now with the now decolonization in the post colonial post colonial state the post colonial state slowly started um, kind of becoming far more visible by extending itself but it was still extending the same governmental apparatus it was an extension of the uh, uh, state apparatus that the british had left it it had not substantively changed it was basically more of the same so it's only in the long 80s from 77 onwards after um, uh, the lifting of uh, the emergency uh, so uh, the, the one sees a new stirring where a very different kind of government apparatus slowly starts to uh, take shape which is clear by the mid 1980s with the formation of the missions so then so my journey was kind of backwards from the field so um, so one very like two or three clear, clear differences therefore in terms of how my Field experiences were speaking to this theory was that no from 45, 46 to 50 and 52 those five, six, seven years were not the um, key period of transformation. If your focus is not on uh, quote unquote politics but in the formal architecture of the uh, state, be not everyone seems to be uh, not not even in not everyone like very rarely somebody. seems to self consciously occupy a sub- subaltern position and interact with the government uh, governmental apparatus uh, from that self that 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 that, that kind of position um, yeah. because um, and i mean we can get into a further details maybe a little later when we get into the other chapters um and uh, thirdly uh, development and, and goals of development are not something that are uh, not contested by the uh, by people right so it is not that these domains of development and politics they are kind of neat watertight compartments in which social actors in one do not interact and and, and engage with the other 
and uh, and the same uh, will go for the domains of political society and civil society the way where we understand these terms based on their genealogy in in western social theory and and thinking yeah thank you yeah thank you um so one way in which you show us um that there are other ways of apprehending uh local developmental realities than using western social theory or concepts from western social theory which um you know include political society um so one way in which you you show us an alternative to this uh, is um, in chapter 5 where you show that a vernacular concept called totre i don't know if i'm saying it correctly um is basically what uh, emerges to frame people's perceptions of the state um what is this uh concept and how do you understand it as um you're providing an example of um i guess a you know a, a theoretical concept that comes from field work and truly does move beyond uh, western social theory uh so political society uh, so i'm also when i started seriously studying um, the like concept of political society i realized also path strategy is using uh, that concept in a, in a very peculiar specific way i think uh, which is never very clearly uh, kind of elaborated so but that's again a separate conversation i have never written about it but uh, but political society is an extremely uh, powerful and and um, and it has a long lineage right it it has a almost 200 more i think more than 200 year uh, lineage uh, uh but the way it is being used now um after this specific formulation by uh, path strategy it has become this domain uh, of the subaltern like it is the domain of subaltern uh, political and social practice so the question is so then to my mind like when i started i'll, I'll also tell you why again how from the field i started talk when thinking about this so the question is um, so when social action is being uh, undertaken or what we see as political action is being undertaken by people we see as powerless or, or less powerful uh, so so how do we understand such action um and if at all you want you want to use the language of part which i would not want to uh so so very clearly a large number of people in the villages do not see the activities of the new developmental state in a positive way especially the older folk uh they see it as uh, like a, a certain kind of um, pulling in of the village into the domain of the state and that they see, rather they see the state as the government coming into the um, into the uh, uh village and they will constantly negatively critique such intervention let me tell you what i mean so uh, through some concrete details so a large number of these people especially older folks will say no things have become uh, worse over the last 20 30 years so when you ask them how things have changed either because of the government government's works or or, or otherwise 
because of the result of the specific project or otherwise so their response will be that like let's say go, the deities local deities the gods and goddesses that that populate their lives are far less efficacious they will say, they, they, they don't listen to you anymore that's what they will say they don't grant us boons anymore uh they, they will also see the moral and the ethical uh, structures that govern social relations within the villages as crumbling like people don't listen to each other anymore especially the younger folk don't listen to the uh, elderly people anymore there is no sense of continuity uh, so all this might be uh, just that old folks grumbling about losing uh their influence uh but i also when i started uh like plotting exactly when they think like from what time they think that uh they think that the things have started becoming bad so i realized they uh, the memories go back till the time the first settlements happened in independent india in that region so they will say whenever the uh, chains the the word in uh, the local language there is sickly uh, when the chain started moving around for settlement that's when the gods started losing their power <laughs> and uh, and that was a very deep insight for me so what they essentially saying is that uh, the local uh, uh, ethical order started crumbling when when the state started Uh, coming in in a big way and they will also constantly say that what has happened when i would ask them without any other um, leading question ki what do you think has happened in the village since the uh, project has started working they will say tautri has increased so that's how you pronounce the word tautri uh, um, so then i then i would ask them ki did tautri come into being only uh, because that's a word that we generally otherwise use in odia as well that's my uh, mother tongue uh and um, uh, so, so so they will they, they would say no 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 mane it was there earlier but with this new way of the government's work it seems to have increased a lot more so they will see it as negatively they touted and and, and so touted uh, is this social domain that they envisage which has come into being by the actions of the developmental state and it has its uh, its it, its uh, its um, influence its size has become greater because of work in the mission mode that is what they will say and um, this domain of sociality is populated by these actors called touters or tout uh, tau and it this word comes from the english word tout of course like an agent so then the touter is in that sense is an agent of the state and toutry is this domain of sociality that comes into being through this intersection of governmental uh, yeah structures and unwillingness to charity uh, so to understand this i i uh, i started asking myself a few heuristic questions uh, to ask what it is not so so when i would so is it politics uh, 
and and thinking through certain uh, incidents, certain ob certain observations from the field, I realized no, it is not politics. Maybe when I, we don't have much time. There is when I, we don't need to perhaps go into details. So then I asked myself, is this corruption? Again, to my mind, through specific examples, through observations, incidents, it was clear that it is not corruption either. Uh, so I just compared uh, this apparently emergent domain of sociality to a few other tropes, to a few other terms, concepts that uh, we use in social science uh, descriptions to understand uh, the um, these overlaps between state society, right? Understand state society relationships, and I realize no. So basically, then one needs to posit another domain to understand what has happened uh, through the actions of the of the new government, new developmental state through the missions, and this local vernacular term tauti seems to capture uh, what has happened, what is happening. Uh, a lot better than any of these other categories and to my mind maybe political society as well it does not quite capture it thank you for that uh, explanation that's very um, helpful in understanding what you mean by uh, really trying to move beyond the limitations of western political theory and and also moving beyond the limitations of theory altogether um, I guess to uh, to conclude our program, uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, what have you been working on since this book uh, has come out, whether in terms of research or otherwise? I have actually, um, um, I've been working on two, three things. And one of them, uh, so basically after finishing my PhD, um, so I submitted my thesis in 2000. Uh, 11 and I got my degree in 2012 because Indian universities take almost a year sometimes more than a year to process and I around the time I submitted my thesis just a little before that I had started teaching in a new university in Bangalore so in the uh, in 2013-14 I realized uh, for many reasons I don't want to be based out of uh, Bangalore where I was I, that's where I did my um, uh, graduate work that's where I did my PhD as well as that's where I had started working so I shifted to my hometown which is Bhubaneswar and I started working out of here so um, at that point of time uh, we had collectively started a small researchers collective that was working in the non-project mode and we were trying to do uh, uh, work uh, that is regionally informed, that is, that focuses on Odisha, but primarily in Odia language. And uh, uh, and uh, that that is informed by human sciences um, thinking, right? So, so not exactly human sciences popularization, but trying to do a little bit of everything, trying to do some research look based on local issues but do it ideally in Nodia and and that is a that that is the language of the region here and um, do uh, try and figure out ways of uh, education learning teaching that 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 make uh, 
the teaching of these subjects so social science humanities subjects in odia a little more exciting for learners so so some uh, and and because we were also clear that we don't want to um, projectize the work uh, so so then the work happened in a particular way so but um, and but i i'm no longer a part of the collective i quit the collective earlier this year in so <clears throat> so so some part so so some part of therefore my work is about the work of the collective and some part of is of course my work so uh, so i was active in this collective let's say from 2014 uh, 15 to 2020 and uh, while doing that work my kind of interest also shifted radically so when i came here i had come with a very different idea of in in mind about what i want to do so the book actually came out in late 2017 early 2018 the book that we are discussing that's because uh, after submitting my thesis i had immediately reworked the thesis into the book by by 2012 my manuscript was ready i kind of started uh, having conversations with uh, publishers in india and then um, nothing was working out so by 2013 14 i had said no this book is not happening so in 2016 i think then somehow a parallel set of conversations started with uh, rutles uk and then this book happened so by that time i was even out of academia formal academia um, when i i actually uh, worked on the last stages of this book uh so over 2014 and 2020 my interests have been around three areas one of them is um, trying to do a social history uh, in and off fragments so let me explain what i mean uh so when we uh, think about social history and you and we want to do social history outside of the framework of the nation uh then what happens sometimes we take a geographically lesser scale so it becomes like a uh province or a state or a district right or thematically we figure out uh a, a geographical uh, sorry uh, uh, so it is in some sense governed through a geographical imaginary so the, to uh, i was increasingly interested in the social history of this region called odisha which i which i'm a part of uh which which i live at the moment and and and, and, and so up to my mind uh, what i wanted to do when i came back was to do a socialist odisha then i realized i don't want to buy into this geographical imaginary and therefore end of reinforcing the idea of the nation because even if it is not the indian nation then it is odisha as a nation right i hope i'm making sense so uh i realize it is also the way we write our social sciences that that is sometimes a problem that does not allow us to get out of certain frames so um uh, so open veins of america i keep on forgetting this guy's name although although, although i love him so much who is the author open veins of latin america uh i i also know what you're talking about and can't remember right. the name can't remember okay doesn't matter but um Uh, so um um so he has a lot of work uh, like uh, he has a working global history 
He has a work on human rights violations in Latin America, which are all done in fragments. Like, and they don't necessarily mm, kind of cohere together, right? When they, they're about a specific theme, but sometimes they go across disparate geographies. Um, uh, so, um, so I thought so this, I think so, working in fragments of social history therefore becomes important to me. And I was doing that work in Odia. So what I did, um, I also wanted to teach myself the social history of Odisha. So I thought maybe reading autobiographies will be a good way. Um, uh, Odia autobiographies. The autobiographies written in the Odia language by Odia people mostly. So I figured out there are a couple of places, one institution, one personal collection in which there are many autobiographies. I personally collected around uh, 160, 170 for my own collection as well as I bought one, around 120 for my uh, the collective I was a part of. So and then I started um, for many years I had this fortnightly column in a little magazine in Nodia where I would discuss uh, fragments of uh, various aspects of what is Odisha socialist and the length will be between um, 300-400 to 1000 words. It was called, the series was called uh, Ostitoru Postcard in Nodia which literally means postcards from the past. Uh, so there was no even claim of doing history. So it was not itihasa. It was not history, but postcards from the past, Atitoru postcard, and they were about um, what kind of uh, songs students used to tease, let's say, teachers with uh, in say pre uh, pre independent India, or um, how did people deal with uh, mental illness? around the time of decolonization. Um, how, what was, uh, how did people watch these traveling jatras in uh, villages, right? Like random vignettes, random pieces of, of, of local history uh, that, but all happening in the Odia speaking regions. So, so I wrote hundred of those and then I, I was a little bored with them because I thought I was just repeating myself. Then I stopped. I stopped last year, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, so that was, but I now have a clear sense of how to put it together about at least one thing. So I worked across six, seven things, uh, teaching and learning, uh, travel, uh, illness, uh, ingestion of substances, right, uh, cannabis, alcohol, um, tobacco in various forms, uh, and uh, food and eating and various modes of entertainment and, and life rituals like marriage etc so there are like six seven themes i was broadly ex uh, exploring but because i was also working in this uh, collective that we had founded about um, social science teaching learning so large amount of my focus was also on learning okay, how uh, and teaching in these schools in colonial in odia or colonial odisha so uh, so I, at the moment, I think I have enough material to, uh, and all of this in Odia, but maybe I am now thinking about a book uh, that is about the history of teaching learning in uh, um, pre-independent Odisha, rather pre-independent uh, Odia speaking regions. 
बिकॉज ओडिशा एज अ स्टेट एज अ प्रोविंस केम इन टू बींग ओनली बट दैट मेटीरियल इज प्राइमरली ड्रॉन फ्रॉम फर्स्ट हैंड अकाउंट्स ऑफ ऑटोबायोग्राफीज सो टू माय माइंड इट इज आल्सो एन एक्सटेंशन ऑफ माय एथनोग्राफिक वर्क बिकॉज लाइक व्हाट डू वी डू व्हेन वी डू एथनोग्राफी लाइक वी ऑफकोर्स ऑब्जर्व we uh, look at processes we 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 kind of uh, analyze objects but we also large part of our work is listening to people taking long interviews right mm. so for me then these autobiographies are about these long interviews that the people have taped for themselves and given to me right <laughs> so of course these need to be cross checked all the time with other sources of data let's say if somebody is saying that they saw a film uh in 1935 or 36 in puri so i need to check whether the film was released on that date um, or on in that year or not or are they getting the dates wrong so some some bare sleuthing of course needs to be done to get the facts right but it is also the meaning that they making out of their lives right and in memory mm. so so this is one project uh, uh, so i have start, i have pulled all that material on teaching learning together in odia i need to get a sense of how to because that material is in odia it takes a particular kind of audience for granted to reword that into english will take uh, a lot more work because you take a lot of things for granted for the local audience like lot of quote unquote no, like insider knowledge right uh, certain names are familiar certain places are familiar so that is one the second uh, area i have been interested in which is social science teaching learning especially at the school level and at the uh, like undergrad level but that work has happened primarily with respect to my practice so i ran a couple of blogs as archiving platforms rather couple of archiving platforms as blogs for 5 6 years for our collective uh, i ran a small learning center for quite some time uh, with uh, underprivileged children dealing with social science subjects also uh, took classes in a government school for some time uh, so that has been the realm of practice so i also need to tie that that but the, most of that work is in my, is in my memory i was not taking notes self consciously so i kind of need to tie that work together so that is second uh, Uh, that is the second other track of work i have been doing the third work is food i have always been interested in food uh, and, um, and, and 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 it has been central to my life in 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 terms of the way i imagine a good life right uh, i'm not a foodie by any chance <laughs> from any angle but i just like like any embodied being like we can't survive without food so food is important to me and 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 and, and i try and eat consciously Uh, and cook consciously when i cook so um, but also increasingly uh, i always used to think that no i can never do academic work on it or something remotely even approaching an academic work but i started writing in the popular press uh, some of it has been published i started also working on a community cookbook belonging to my community like on the food of and and, and the cuisine of my community that is halfway through and um, i also wrote one full textbook and uh, another uh, co-wrote another textbook la- in, during the pandemic last year for a university in india uh, so and i took up that assignment when it was offered to me because i thought it will systematically uh, 
help me uh, deal with the literature so that was her post graduate diploma uh, course done in for a central university in india so that material is yet to be published that it come out as books but i think i mean they will need to follow their own processes of reviewing and and and, and designing and all of that but uh, now also because of this work of writing in the popular press reading systematically i uh, and and also i have collected some material so so after i get this um, teaching and learning um, uh, in uh, pre uh, independent india book kind of going in some sense i want to systematically look at the um, uh, history of food in contemporary india that's a very large basket to to to, to look at mm. and but uh, when i was doing this textbook i realized ki it looks it looks like a lot of work has happened but um and maybe it has but there is very little work in many areas and there is no synthetic work that 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 ties up everything together and then gives us like uh, comprehensive uh, uh, understanding of of even how to think through certain issues um and and in some areas there is no work absolutely no work like the um, like it's only recently uh, a phd thesis i think was completed in a university in uk about uh, the food of the railways in colonial india right you presume that work would have happened like decades ago <laughs> but it hasn't happened <laughs> so but so i think one needs to do a comprehensive exercise of doing synthetic work so at least gaps are visible right now we don't even know what the gaps are in india to think about food yeah so yeah so that's uh, yeah it's it's been great to hear about future directions and there are quite a different uh, number of diverse directions that your work might develop in and uh, um yeah this book i found very insightful and um helpful myself and really appreciated you writing it and definitely i'm going to keep an eye out for and i'm sure our listeners will too uh for your future publications and we look forward to having you here again but thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your book and uh, we hope uh, everything goes smoothly for your future projects thank you aparna thank you again for giving me this opportunity to um, reach out um, about the book and it has been a pleasure talking to you